Welcome to the Vancouver Tech Podcast. This is episode 83. I'm your host, Drew Grizzik. Samantha Ming from the Events Podcast. What's going on this week? Before I jump into the events this week, I promised you guys last week I would share my thoughts on attending Unbounce's Call to Action Conference. My verdict? It was super fun. The organizers really put in a lot of emphasis on the experience. What I thought was really cool was the stamp book. When you talk to an exhibitor, you get to collect these stamps which allows you to trade them in for goodies such as a water bottle or a hoodie. There are also games at the booth, so the experience of talking to an exhibitor is actually really fun. And throughout the conference, you have access to snacks and drinks, and of course the presentations were wonderful. What I really liked was that the organizers made a conscious effort to have equal amount of female speakers and male speakers, and announced a new initiative called SentHerStage.org. It's a keynote speaker bootcamp aiming to encourage more women to take on speaking opportunities and make their voices heard on stage. Super cool. And for those who didn't attend, don't worry, you can check out the presentations on the CTA website. It should be up either this week or next. Alright, let's get back to this week's events. On Tuesday, there is a team building 101 event at 6.30 in Gastown. On Wednesday, there is Kubernetes in practice. Kubernetes is an open-source platform for automating deployment. It was originally designed by Google. So if you're interested in that, the event is at 6 p.m. at Hootsuite's headquarters. Also at 6 p.m., you can attend Techstarter's Code Night. There will be mentors at the event, so if you're at a roadblock with your code, you can come to this event and get some help. This is happening at Lighthouse Labs. Finally, on Thursday, we have a presentation on Facebook ads, this is at 6 p.m. at Brain Station. And that's this week's top selection of events you should check out. And we're here with Nathan Ladd as part three of our Monolith versus Microservices series that we started a few weeks ago. Nathan, we're talking a little bit today about microservices and monoliths. Now, these are I don't know if these are just buzzwords. Obviously, they are, they are real things. But a lot of people these days are looking at, at microservices. Let's break out services from our monolith. Where do you start? When do you know? When do you, if you have a monolith and it's a mess, for example, is it time to break out into services? When is the responsible time to start bringing out services? How do you do so? Well, I think, I think the number one thing to start with is kind of doing a little bit of self-analysis at asking yourself, is my motivation to create improvement for the for the organization, uh-huh. or is my motivation to get out of this feeling of being trapped? Because, because a lot of teams that I've seen, they get started down services as a way out uh, without having done the prep work. And I think that not enough people are talking about the prep work. Um, so uh, the, before you, before we talk about the prep work, that actually sounds really interesting. But services as a way out, a way out of what? Uh, we don't have to deal with the old code base anymore, the monolith. It seems to me like just from what you're saying there, like that all, that seems obviously dangerous because if we have a code base um, that we don't want to deal with, we've got to ask ourselves, how did we get into that code base? 
Yeah, I think so. So going on that theme, I, I think imagine you've just got a, a single class that is messy, right? Maybe it's a thousand lines of code with all these methods and whatnot. Before, so so let's say you want to replace that class with another, a, a better class or a set of classes that work better. You know, we we kind of understand better, I think, what we need to do to make that happen more. We need to build a new thing that has the same sort of interface that does all the same thing as the old one, right? Or we have to, if we, if we want to introduce a breaking change as part of our, our improvement, then we've got to go to every call site and adjust accordingly because we've made a breaking change to the interface. That's painful enough when you're looking at a single class, you know, that's maybe got a thousand lines of code. When you're looking at a monolith that your organization spent years, you know, had a team of people spending years getting it into the state that it's in, you had not even beyond the dev team, you had uh, requests by your sales associates or your product management team that, that, that needed features for that one customer. You've accumulated all these use cases over the years. So I think that a lot of teams tend to underestimate how much they have to keep working in the monolith to keep all of your customers happy. They don't think about all those elaborate user interfaces that you've stood up that need that one database table to be just so. Uh, otherwise, that interface won't work. Is there a sort of reasonable way or a sane way, like going back to the, the example of a single class, because I think that's something we can kind of hold in our head a, a thousand lines long and that has you know, hundreds, of, uh, hundreds of methods that its interface may be being used is there a way to know what uh, what depends on that and its methods being exposed? Uh, there is a way to know, and that is uh, note taking. So the you you can do, you can know it by hand, right? So you can go through all of your user interfaces and make note of what what data are they what 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 part of your data model are are those user interfaces coupled to, um, and and that gives you a starting point to make you realize how you know how much functionality you have to preserve in the new system mm -hmm. um, and it also gives you an opportunity to say hey we don't need that anymore so you can decommission you know parts of your user interface today and and eliminate chunks of work down the road just by sort of auditing now i guess like with most things the level of confidence that you'd have with uh, with with knowing that would be based a lot on the amount of time that you spent into it, then probably with diminishing returns over time. Yeah, and it's it's like, uh, you know, whether you're using a statically typed language to, to program and that gives you all sorts of automatic inferencing tools or not, at this level, you're never able to, to use an, a, a tool to kind of extract or mine all this information for you, um, which means you're also susceptible to human error. So if you do one pass through everything, uh, you're going to get a good amount of data from it. You do a second pass, you might get a little bit more, and you might correct some misunderstandings you had the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of thing is very grueling work, and it's very, very easy to get sloppy with it if you're not careful. Uh, nobody likes punching through UI and, and taking notes. Like it used to be very common that uh, you know every programmer would keep a notebook next to their their computer, and they would just meticulously write notes. Um, mm -hmm. I think that kind of thing is is a, is a good starting point because when you think about, you know, what you want to do is substitute this entire gigantic organism that you've built over a couple years for for something new, and you've got to know what that organism does, and 
And usually teams have kind of lulled themselves, teams that are, are, are really excited about microservices have lulled themselves into thinking, well, it's basically just doing, you know, our whole monolith is just basically doing back of house inventory processing. So that's what we need as a service. Uh, cool. and, and that kind of perspective neglects all the hidden contracts that your, your user interfaces have with that, with that monolith. Right. Okay. So, so what's a good place to start? Let's say you have a monolith. Um, it's been in production for X years. You have, you know, N number of customers using it. And um, when slash why would you ever even think of microservices? I think the case for microservices uh, is a couple things. Number one, uh, you end up if if you if you know you're going to end up with 10 million lines of code, there's a certain there's only so much control that a, a, a human organization can have over that much code. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that services, autonomous services that are operated and maintained independently, that are very loosely coupled offers you a way to say, I don't need to build a 10 million line of code thing that's good. I only need to build things that are 10,000 or whatever the number is. I can build smaller things that are good. It's a lot easier for us to control something that's smaller, right? Sure, um, but I, I mean, that, and it, that sounds quite reasonable for a starting point or when you have some sort of conceptual understanding of where to draw the seams, but uh, doesn't that just lead to uh, distributed monoliths? Well, I, I think that the methodology you employ and the conceptualization you have of microservices is going to determine whether you end up with a distributed monolith. Uh -huh. So uh, kind of how, how well you understand uh, the problems that you're solving. Yeah, I think that, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I've seen a lot of teams not really understand what the monolith does. And, and who all is depending on it. They don't, they don't even picture in their minds the people out there in the world using the software and everything that they're using it for when they, when they say confidently, yep, we're ready for microservices. Well, I've heard some very, I think, interestingly conflicting opinions. Uh, you know, you like start with, a micro, or start with a monolith, build that out, then see where the logical seams are and start pulling those out into services. And uh, Scott Belwer actually mentioned something that I thought was really interesting, which was, uh, I think it was something like the road to services is not through monoliths. Or, or a monolith is not a logical progression toward, a, toward microservices. Yeah. So I, I think what we characterize monoliths with is one big bag of data with a whole bunch of software on top of it. Here's a, sorry, I just wanted to add to that because I pulled uh, up microservices.io which uh, you may be familiar with. I know um, there's a lot of a lot of information about microservices, and under the the title "Where to Start," it literally says this: a good starting point is the monolithic architecture pattern, which is the traditional architecture style that is still a good choice for many applications. Uh, and this is with regards to where do we go? Uh, how do we get to microservices? Yeah, I think if you if you every monolith I've seen, and that's really what I can I can speak to, and I've seen quite a few of them. Every monolith I've seen, uh, if you just take the the code and the boundaries as they're structured inside the monolith and the data dependencies, and you just start taking that code and moving it out to a service, you're going to end up with communication patterns between your services that 
sort of violate the autonomy of those services because they've never they've never had to exist in an environment where they're bounded locally. Uh, you know, monoliths are characterized by strong dependencies between the different uh, data elements, the different database tables, foreign key relationships, associations, and I think that. I think that that sounds really good in theory, right? I, I would like that to be the case, right? What microservices.io is saying. However, I have never seen a monolith that was ready to be just ready to go to, to be converted into services. So let's take this back uh, or I guess back a few levels. Um, if you had some advice to give to, uh, let's say, a CEO, who is hearing from their developer uh, development team, you know, now might be a good time to break out into services or, you know, we're sick of this monolith. We want uh, service-oriented architecture or a monolith. Do you have some words of caution or advice that you might give? Yeah, I think if, if I were in the CEO's shoes, I would be wanting to see a detailed plan that, that mitigates some common pitfalls. Number one, how are you going to reshape the underlying data model that is entangled within the monolith? How are you going to reshape it into having these isolated consistency boundaries that you can simply detach as services? Um, really, not. I mean, that's a very technical. That's a very technical assessment. Um, but I think that's that's what you need to do, sort of ask of your development team. Uh, what what are you going to do about the monolith to get it ready? Um, because you can't. You can't extract the code from a monolith and call it a service. You can rearrange the code and the underlying uh, data layer. You can rearrange it so that it can be detached safely, but that's a lot of work. And are you, are you, are you including the cost of that work in your assessment of how, how big of a deal, you know, how, much, how big of a level of effort is, is it for us to go to microservices? And that's, that's assuming you're trying to go from micro, uh, monolith to microservices. Another approach is to simply build a new product and then transparently migrate your customers from the old to the new, which has its own set of uh, pitfalls and, and problems. Okay. Um, so here's another question. Why should anybody listen to you? Well, uh, if I were listening to me, I would ask the same thing, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, would, I would always be very, very cautious. Um, I've seen a lot of software projects undertaken to try to imp improve monoliths. I've seen a lot of them fail. I've seen some of them succeed. Um, and fundamentally, I'm I don't want to see I don't want to see teams fail. You know, if you're asking like, what can I do to add credibility? Like, like does Nathan have credibility in this subject matter? Uh, yeah, I've I've taken a monolith and I've built services that process millions of transactions. Uh, without errors, without any problems, um, that are ready to achieve high scalability because they're built on on uh, architectural primitives that allow for that. So I, I have I have achieved some success in that regard, um, but I, I wouldn't say I'm the world's foremost authority on microservices or anything like that. Um, but I and I think ultimately you got to put every idea to the test. Anything that I anything that I tell you, um, I, I would I would analyze it and and try to poke holes in it. That's how we improve upon ideas. And I think it's pretty self-evident to me that the more you do, so if you're gonna if you're gonna start a big rewrite type project or a big microservices project, the more you do due diligence to question your assumptions and your ideas and challenge them, the more you do, the the more likely you are to succeed. So I would say actually I would flip it around, Drew, and say 
don't trust me. Consider the ideas and then try to refute them. And then maybe we'll arrive at an even better understanding. So basically make make a choice uh, based on what you have and always be seeking more. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, a microservices endeavor is going to be at least, and it's, it's going to at least cost you in the millions. Um, uh-huh. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take such an undertaking lightly. I, I would be cool with spending a month or however much time it takes really trying to make that kind of migration path have a roadmap that's set up for success. So that's a huge number. You said it's going to cost you millions. As somebody thinking of moving toward microservices from a monolith, and let's say I have a Rails app that I spent two weeks developing, and I have zero one customer already because I, I was really fast. I don't have millions of dollars, so I'm definitely not thinking of microservices. Uh, well, I think number one, if you've had experience with with autonomous microservices, you can build a monolith, right? Or a single deployment unit. Your whole application is a single deployable unit. You can build that in a way that's ready for microservices one day mm-hmm. and still have, you know, experience the short-term productivity gains that you see with, you know, having everything in the same project, being able to rapidly iterate. Well, I mean, if you are building a monolith and you, you're keeping things modular, you have nice code, you have uh, loose coupling, um, is there a need for microservices? Uh, well, I, I'm going to I'm going to uh, offer a criticism to what you just said, which is those aren't the first places to be looking. It's your under it's your underlying storage model. It's it's where the data lives on disk and how it's arranged that ultimately dictates the detachability. So if you're building your monolith on top of a relational database schema, that is your authoritative system of record of your application state, and it's also the database you're using to power all of the queries that are that are exposed in your user interface then you're going to end up with the kind of data level entanglement that requires migration plans. So I, I think, I think the, we want our code to be modular and decoupled. I think that that's, that's a good, but I think that kind of change isn't enough to avoid the entanglement at the database level for what we need to be ready for microservices. Does that make sense? I think it does. I guess what I'm wondering is, are you saying that we should really understand the types of the type of data or the types of data that we're dealing with, uh, how we want to be dealing with this and and store it and access it, and really that microservices or monolith, whatever, are more of a result of a database-driven architectural understanding? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think the the database layer. How you arrange your bits on disk mm-hmm. is one of the biggest factors in terms of the pliability of a monolithic code base to become services, if, mm. not, if not the biggest. I, I happen to think it is the biggest. Does that mean that we should involve data scientists in our software architecture? Uh, no. Uh, I, I, th- I think that uh, data scientists or, or the, the notion of I want to mine our data to, to glean useful information Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, I want to take a step back. I, I think that relational databases can be difficult for a lot of da- data scientists to work with. I think mm-hmm. that if, if you have, if you're using event sourcing and you have event logs that you can export, I think data scientists can have a much richer perspective from which to draw their, their analysis or conclusions. And I think that's better for them. So yes, absolutely. 
how you store, how you persist data also impacts them very heavily and they should have a seat at the table when it comes to the decision-making around how we do that. But yeah. uh, mm -hmm. when I'm building a, a transactional system, that data science is not a concern in that context. Right. I see what you're, I see what you're saying. So we should definitely involve people, I guess, stakeholders of the data when we're designing our system. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, your architecture that you build is for everybody. It's not for the programmers solely. Uh, it's so oh. that your business can move at the cadence that it wants to, so that your data analysts and your data scientists can do what they want to do. What I'm kind of extracting here from what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is that in order to understand what your system should look like or what a good way to go with your system is going to be, uh, it's kind of essential to to really spend time understanding the types of data that not only is going to be flowing through your system, but that your system is going to be storing and care about. And how you model that data really is going to tell you and maybe make obvious how you should be modeling your services. Yeah, but I, I don't want to encourage an overfixation on the, on the data model. What really the point, the perspective I'm bringing around the data, the storage with respect to, to models and microservices is more that when the data becomes entangled, it becomes a tremendous impediment to microservices. But that doesn't mean that, that data itself is, is the most important thing. When you think about this from the perspective of if a given request response cycle in your monolith, like let's say it's a, it's a Ruby on Rails monolith, mm -hmm. in a given request response cycle, if the database or the disk is never touched, in other words, the, the request is fulfilled entirely in memory, then remediating any code that happens in the span of that request, any repair work that you do is going to be purely uh, confined to refactoring code, which, uh, you know, there's great tools that help that help with that, those refactorings and we can get very proficient at it. I had a, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of deep refactorings in, in code bases and it's actually kind of fun and engaging and satisfying when you, when you take that code and you make it better. Right. When there's so a, this is all kind of talking about from the point of view of uh, of monoliths or starting with monoliths or or if monoliths even being on the table. But what if you're starting something new? Would you consider starting something new with uh, microservices first approach? Uh, if I'm starting a new business today, my general approach is I'm going to probably. Well, first of all, I'm going to look at how the how the business is is expecting to grow. You could be a B2B business that is expecting to you know, get a land a couple big deals in the first six months that are going to cause your traffic to spike up in tremendous amounts, right? And in those cases, you're going to need to think about scalability first, you know, you know, in the, in the initial planning stages. But uh, that's, that's kind of a rare case. Um, if I want the expedience of having my entire project in one place, uh, first of all, you know, I think it's important to assess how expedient it is. Uh, because I think a lot of I think a lot of the reason that microservices feel more costly, there's more overhead, is because there's a lot of expensive tooling associated with them that doesn't have to be there. But in general, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with building, for instance, a, a, a single deployable unit, a, a monolith that's got independent processes running inside of it that I'm sort of, I sort of think about it as I'm incubating nascent you know, services inside a monolith getting them ready for detachment when the need should arise. And I, and I, that's, that's kind of my approach to starting a new, a new project. Okay. So you're already trying to understand uh, sort of what the data is, where it lives, how it acts, and then what the services are and, and where they fit into place, regardless of what sort of um, 
framework you might be using or architectural right. patterns. Yeah, that's because using event streams to store uh, event sourcing to store data, it it gives it, it actually just makes the the code better. Like it's one of those things that that when you're experienced with it, it will guide your your code even in a monolithic setting to be to be better. Um, to have less going on, less you have to think about, easier to change, easier to refactor, etc. Okay, very cool. Well, definitely gives us a lot to think about uh, with regards to microservices versus monoliths. Uh, Nathan Ladd, thank you very much for joining us. We'll take a look at uh, some of the work that you've done on the Eventide project. Thanks, thanks for joining us, Nathan. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Check out our website, vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Rate and subscribe on iTunes. Much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter, Van Tech Podcast. Feel free to leave some comments below. You can also hit us up on the YBR Dev, the Vancouver Tech, the Van Tech Slacks. I'm at James. And I'm at Drew. Special thanks to Same Room for hooking us up with an integration that allows us to have a cross-team Slack channel, Van Devs. Do you have a meetup that you want us to plug? Email us, show at vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Music by A Shell in the Pit from the game Parkitect. See you at one of the meetups around, around town. town.